Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth. With your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Hey everyone, good to have you with us on this brand new episode of Window on the West. As Michael, Dan, and I continue to go through uh, the Silmarillion, this week we're going to be reading Chapter 9 of The Flight of the Noldor. I'm here with, as I said, Dan Coates. Hey. And Michael Grumbine. Howdy. Who, despite some upheaval in his house and moving, is joining us and deigning to offer his presence. It's wonderful to see you guys. Nice to see you. It's been a while. We took a week off, but uh, we're back. Uh, and uh, and w- as we go through Flight of the Noldor, I mean, this is a long chapter, so I'm hoping we can get through it all in one sitting. Uh, there's a lot in here. I think this might be one of my, it's a, one, probably in the top few chapters in the whole Silmarillion, and it's got one of my favorite quotes in the whole thing too, um, which I'm going to try and play for us here. But But before we do that, before we go into that, we do like to play our game. All that is gold does not glitter. Uh, and this week, it's my turn. We've got three quotes. And these three quotes, um, there's really no combination. There, I, I decided I'm not going to go with a the theme. I'm just going to see how good you guys are with just random <laughs> just quotes. Just random thoughts. Let's do it. Just no, I'm, random I'm things. Ready. All right. I'm ready for this. <laughs> okay. So here's the first quote. I'll put it in the... Uh, the chat that we're sharing here, guys. It is, it is as pleasant as it is unusual to see thoroughly good people getting their desserts. It is as pleasant as it is unusual to see thoroughly good people getting their desserts. Hmm. All right. Uh, that's quote one. Quote two is, well, let me grab that here. It is, in such a great inevitable love, often love at first sight, we catch a vision, I suppose, of marriage as it should have been in an unfallen world. In such a great inevitable love, often love at first sight, we catch a vision, I suppose, of marriage as it should have been in an unfallen world. Hmm. All right, third quote. This is, there certainly does seem a possibility that the detective story will come to an end simply because the public will have learnt all the tricks. There certainly does seem a possibility that the detective story will come to an end simply because the public will have learnt all the tricks. Uh, although I, here's maybe here's the common thread. Uh, Tolkien knew all these people, including himself, himself and these two quotes. He was familiar <laughs> with these folks. So it's not like I picked uh, uh, Brandon Sanderson or Dan Brown or something like that or Joe Biden. Mm. Joe Biden. I kind of want to see uh, Michael Grumbine, uh, you know, kind of you... puzzle this out verbally. I can come afterwards and, and make an informed decision can here. Ride the coattails yeah. of Michael Grumbine's deep thoughts. Huh? Um, all right. So you want me to guess first? So we have three, not four? Three, three. We're doing three. This is a long chapter. We can't do four. I'm being sorely tempted. I don't know if it's because of the guile of Jonathan Watson or because <laughs> it is, in fact, his style to pick number two, quote number two. And the reason is because it very much seems to describe the Baron and Luthien story. Um, although the unfallen world 
Mm, it's probably C.S. Lewis actually about Paralandra now that I think about it, because that's le- that's more unfallen than um, than uh, than the Baron and Luthien story. So that leaves me with one or three. As pleasant wow. as, as it is unusual to see thoroughly good people getting their desserts. That is kind of have the negativity of uh, the, the sort of backhandedness of Tolkien in that regard where, you know, but he did like to take down, um, you know, analyze other literary genre. Mm-hmm. So three is also a possibility. So I am talking myself into three, <laughs> into three. <laughs> at this point. So um, I, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think uh, number two goes better. Wait, okay. Maybe it is him talking right. about. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to put a timer on this next time, man. Right. This is, okay. So I'm gonna go with number three. Finally. Number three. Hmm. All right. See, I would go with number three because I trust Michael so much. But that sounds like G.K. Chesterton to me. I think that sounds because he is all about the Father Brown mystery. I don't I don't know. So this sounds like G.K. Chesterton. I'm probably wrong though. I'm I'm gonna say the Tolkien quote is number one. Hmm. All right. I win. It was two. It was two. Michael, you talked yourself out of it. So number two, in such a great inevitable love, often love at first sight, we catch a vision, I suppose, of marriage as it should have been in an unfallen world. That is a letter he wrote to his son, Michael Tolkien, who I believe was stationed maybe in Africa at that point, Hmm. March 1941, World War II, uh, where he's talking all about marriage and women and relations. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's a long letter, uh, but it's a good quote. The first quote, um, it is as pleasant as, as it is unusual to see thoroughly good people getting their desserts is from Charles Williams, who is also one of the inklings, C.S. Lewis Williams and Tolkien are essentially the three inklings who met together and read their works to each other. Uh, and then the last quote, there certainly does seem a possibility that the detective story will come to an end simply because the public will have learned all the tricks is by Dorothy Sayers. Oh, Sayers. Right. Yeah. So anyway. Wow, I think this is the first time I've won simply because I s- screwed you guys over and I didn't can't pick it correctly. So I still haven't won by picking it correctly. But hey, good job. Now these are hard, right? This is kind of fun to see. I like it. Um, how how it's easy to to think you know somebody sometimes, even like Tolkien, and uh, and something like where he's talking about the unfallen world, right? It'll it'll make you it'll make you think of something else like like C.S. Lewis. Is he, is, like do that. you know if in the letter, Jonathan, he's talking about the Baron and Luthien story or is he talking about something else? I, I don't believe he's talking about Baron and Luthien. He, he may, it may uh, take part in that letter, but he's talking more about, you know, women and men relationships, how we judge each other, how we look at each other, uh, how history has created the societies that we have between relations between men and, men and women. Anyway, at least I think so. I, I didn't read All the right. whole, whole letter before getting that quote, but yeah. Okay, cool. Nice. Well, good, good job. One. Good, good one, job. Man. Thanks guys. Good job. Me. Woo-woo. <laughs> um, so now let's, let's move on. Cause this chapter is by far the most impactful chapter we've read so far, just because it sets up so much of the rest of the books. And I love it. Uh, has one of my favorite quotes, uh, in the entire Silmarillion in here. Um, and so before we get started into uh, these deep waters, Dan, do you have your first? Dan's Big Thought. My big thought this chapter is that this chapter is kind of like the original sin of the Noldor. Um, maybe not the original sin of in, in Valinor, because Feanor is already kind of fallen by this point, but it's definitely the original sin of a large group of the elves and they're led by Feanor to rebel against the gods 
And basically, they're living in like paradise. They're living in the Garden of Eden. I, I keep going back to making that uh, analogy with Genesis. But, um, but a- after they do what they do in this chapter, they are completely banished. They are exiled forever. And you kind of see that as, as they're leaving, um, they're, they're, they encounter someone who they think is Mandos. I, I don't know if it ever explicitly says it. Um, but, uh, his, his pronouncement upon the people as they're leaving is tears unnumbered, ye shall shed and the Valar will fence Valinor against you and shut you out so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains on the house of Fanor, the wrath of the Valar lieth from the, from the West unto the uttermost East and upon all that will follow them. It shall be laid also their oath shall drive them and yet betray them because they, they've all made an oath to go and get the Cimarils back and fight Melkor. Um, so their oath will drive them, yet it will betray them and ever snatch away the very treasures they have sworn to pursue. To evil end shall all things turn that they begin well, and by treason of kin unto kin, in the fear of treason shall th- this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they be forever. And just that final line is like, this is the curse. This is the... You are now cursed. You are now the dispossessed. And that, that really jumped out at me in this chapter. Yeah, it's like the, they're the final, it's, it's speaking judgment at the, at the final step that they're taking. It feels like that final moment of, you know, of being cast out of the Garden of Eden, right? The, mm-hmm. the angel with the sword being set as a guard. And it, it feels in the same way, like, look, this, you're, you're going to have to, uh, you know, women will bear children and men will die by the sword, right? That's sort of, that's, that's kind of the, the punishment, the ideas of what you've done by taking this oath. Yep. And immediately after the paragraph that you read, Dan, he actually says something very much like that. He says, he says, essentially, for though Eero appointed to you to die not in Ea, and no sickness may assail you, yet slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be, by weapon, and by torment, and by grief. And your houseless spirit shall come then to Mandos. Um, there long shall ye abide and yearn for your bodies and find little pity, though all whom ye have slain should entreat for you. So this is the mm-hmm. punishment of the of the blood they of their kin that they've spilled. And um, and he interestingly finishes by saying that and those that endure in Middle Earth and come not to Mando. So now we we could be thinking of Galadriel, for example, and the the few Noldor Glorfindel um, who survive. Um, those that endure in Middle Earth and come not to Mandos shall grow weary of the world as with a great burden and shall wane and become as shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after the Valar have spoken. So, so he's foretelling that not only will they be slain as a punishment for their blood, their, um, their murder, um, but they will also, those that aren't slain will, will, will wane and diminish and become lesser. Mm-hmm. I never noticed how that is a direct call to even Gladriel saying, I will diminish and go into the West and remain Gladriel yep. uh, in, uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, it's good. Uh, it's a direct callback. Call forward. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I do like the idea that, I mean, this is, if it's not the original sin, it's the the moment that, that cascades, that it's the, it's the first pebble that creates the snowball that destroys everything in the future, so to speak. Um, right, right. Yeah. So that was Dan's big thought. We should probably at least talk about how the the chapter flows, right? Because yeah, well, well, speaking of the beginning of the chapter, the the one of the things that really stood out to me this time was uh, the idea that 
that Yavana has a similar relationship to the trees that, that uh, Fanor does to the Silmarils. Uh, because as Feanor says, you know, I cannot remake this. Yavanna says the same thing where she, uh, she, she says the light of the trees I brought into being and with an Ea, I can never do so again yet, but I had a little of the light. I could recall life to the trees ere the roots decay. And then our hurt should be healed and the malice of Melkor be confounded. And, um, and though, you know, and they're, they're kind of telling like Feanor, like, well, Hey, you go and you break your stuff so that we got the trees back. But then Feanor is essentially saying, like, I'm going to, you know, my heart's going to be broken, too. Uh, let's see. He writes, for the less even as for the greater, for the less meaning Feanor as for the greater meaning Ivana or the Valar, there is some deed that he may accomplish but once only. And in that deed, his heart shall rest. It may be that I can unlock my jewels, but never again shall I make their like. And if I must break them, I shall break my first and I shall be slain. First of all, the Eldar and Amun. And uh, I find that... Uh, a really appropriate, like, like it, it speaks to my heart in the sense that, that like when, when you put your heart and soul into something and somebody else comes in and breaks it, I mean, I'm sure Yvonne's heart was broken that the trees became lifeless and dead and all their light was gone. But in the same way, because, you know, because she had put her whole being essentially into raising these up. And in the same way, Fanor had put everything that he could into creating these Silmarils and his, his heart, his life would be broken if, if they broke those two. I found that, I found that a, a, a neat parallel that I hadn't really uh, experienced before in reading these. Right. And we get, we get parallels of different types with that. Um, Cause Fianor says something similar, right? And then I like how Aule is his defender too, where he tells, he tells Tulkas um, like, come on, Fanor, dude, get, get with the program here. Like the Silmarils light isn't your own and yet you're keeping it from everybody. And then Aule says to him, be not hasty. We ask a greater thing than thou knowest. Let him have peace yet a while. Uh, yeah, it's a, the, you know, the, the Valor are not a monolithic uh, mind. They, they have their own approaches to things. And I think that, you know, we see that in the, the sins of the Valar that occur when M- Manwe does, can't see evil, when um, Yavanna and Tulkas can't understand Feanor's point of view, and when uh, when Aule, you know, kind of pushes back against them and says, "When you create something like this, give him a minute. Like this is this is a huge deal." Right, right, and and we see Nienna takes a part too. It's interesting. I had forgotten about this, but she washes. So there's still defilement of some kind from Ungoliant on the trees, and she washes them away with her tears. Then Feanor is told about the death of his father, which explains Mandos's comment that he wasn't the first, wouldn't right. have been the first to die if he had broken the Simrels. Um And uh, and then uh, Feanor names Melkor Morgoth, and so yeah. this is this is the naming of, of this is the naming of Morgoth, or of Melkor as Morgoth, and that's what right. we refer to him always, ever after. I think, and and one thing that just occurred to me just now actually was the line. Um, that when he found out that his father was slain, uh, Fanor ran from the ring of doom and fled into the night for his father was dearer to him than the light of Valinor or the peerless works of his hands. And who among sons of elves or of men have held their fathers of greater worth? He held his father of greater worth than the Silmarils, than Yvonne did of the trees, right? It was, it was the greatest worth. And so really, now that I think about it, his pursuit of Morgoth, stems from the fact that he loved his father so much, not that he coveted the, the Silmaril so much, because even the light of the, of the trees, the light of Valinor was less important to him 
than the love he had for his father. Maybe that's reading a little bit too much into it, but I feel like that that humanizes or elfinizes him a little bit more <laughs> um, uh, from just being the greedy, lustful, um, oath-making king who uh, is willing to do anything to get Silmarils back, but he probably wants to do anything to hurt Morgoth and get the Silmarils back in the meantime because Morgoth killed his father, who he holds more dearly than the light of the Valinor, which is inside the Silmarils. Hmm. Maybe that's too deep of a read. So I don't think it's too deep. What's interesting is to me is two things can be true at once, right? So this is, it's Tolkien's telling us clearly that he holds his father dearer than everything, which is amazing considering what he's just said, that if he breaks the Silmarils, he's going to die himself. So, yeah. so he's holding his father above that. That's Good true. Point. But when I jump a couple pages to the oath of Fionor that they all take, it is focused on the Silmarils. It's focused first on Morgoth as the great enemy. Um, it says, it says uh, Fionor is exhorting um, the, the, um, the Noldor, and he says, War we sh shall he have, and hatred undying. But when we have conquered and have regained the Silmarils, then we and we alone shall be lords of the unsullied light mm. and masters of the bliss and beauty of Arda. No other race shall oust us. So he's kind of combining a lot of elements there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't mention his father anymore, but although we, we do know that that, that personal hurt was deeper than even the Silmarils. But, um, but when he's exhorting his people and get, he gets them to swear an oath the very next sentence, um, he's, he's calling upon the Silmarils and he's appealing to their um, being lords of the unsullied light. Because we have to remember, there's no more light in Amun from the two trees except from the Silmarils. So all we have left is starlight in the world, I guess, because um, there's no sun mm -hmm. and moon. So now they're going to be lords of the unsullied light. And, um, and then masters of bliss and the beauty of Arda. So basically they're going to rule Arda. Um, and, and, and we know that that appeals, for example, to uh, Galadriel in her youth. And that's why she goes and takes, yeah. she doesn't take the oath, but she goes with them. Yeah, to be a master of a land. Right. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that is something that, that's worth pointing out, especially because we have the um, Rings of Power series soon upon us. And, um, and but that's just because, no, never mind. I don't want to get into it. It's too much. That's for another episode. It's coming. We, we're not supposed to date um, ourselves too much in these. Yeah, podcasts, no, but, I know. Yeah. I know. Well, be, between, but between the oath and between his father dying, we have, uh, I think the other major event, which is, uh, Morgoth, uh, escaping from Valinor with Ungoliant. Yes. Uh, part of me always likes seeing Morgoth. Morgoth's kind of put into his place and he has to be saved which you know or uh, yeah which which you wouldn't really expect because that means Ungoliant is is crazy powerful too considering Morgoth is the most powerful of all the Valar uh and he has to be saved by Balrogs the back and forth that they have where she you know she says uh you know I I've done my I've done my bidding and I hunger still and um you and, and Ungoliant says you know you took all those gems from Formanos from from uh Fanor's horde uh I will have all of that yea with both hands thou shalt give it as he said and then Morgoth surrendered all the gems to her one by one and grudgingly she devoured them and their beauty perished from the world huger and darker yet grew Ungoliant but her lust was unsated with one hand thou givest she said with the left only open thy right hand and his right hand he held the Silmarils so for the whole time he's been giving her these uh these less than gems, these gems that uh, clearly aren't the uh, tippy top of the valley, the cubic zirconia 
of uh, Middle Earth. Of, uh, of <laughs> Although I'd like to point out that given that Fanor creates the Palantiri at the same time that he creates these other gems, these cubic zirconia, these cubic zirconia would probably be objects of legend in their own right. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you can have a bad cigar, but it, it might come from a good company and you might be like, nah, maybe you like it a little bit more because the maker was was better. It's just like Feanor. Feanor, Feanor made this gem, so it's worth something, you know? It, it has this, anyway. Anyway, but yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Mor- so... Morgoth is really regretting not uh, not giving himself some pockets. You could have been like, hey, my, my hands are empty. You got everything. and <laughs> I've given with both hands. <laughs> then we can get the bad reference to to the hobbit what has he got in his pockets is oh. <laughs> except this one asked by maybe maybe that was the original uh the original inclination he had for this line was to actually say i have her say what and okay anyway we're getting too far afield <laughs> in this um so yeah so he gives her the sil- so he doesn't give her the silmarils and uh she ends up uh binding him up which is still amazing to me that anyway that that she's she's more powerful than him in that sense. Did the, right. didn't the text become, say something? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Did, didn't the text say something about how she became so powerful because uh, Morgoth lended her some of his power, something to that effect? Yes, but Ungolian had grown great, and he less by the power that had gone out of him, and she rose against him, and her cloud closed about him, and she enmeshed him in a web of clinging thongs to strangle him. But we have to remember from the previous chapters that Ungoliant has drained the wells of Arda, the light, these wells of liquid light that were from the trees. They're like lakes, essentially, of light. Yeah. And she's grown more and more powerful as time. Clearly, Morgoth was greater than her um, when he first approached her in the south of um, you know the land of Valinor. But um, but then, you know, she's drained the trees, she's drained the wells of Arda, she's grown larger each time, more powerful, more, and now she's eaten all the gems, which, if you remember, these gems are not just sparkly gems, they actually um, contain light and, and give it back in different um, forms, uh, not as great as the Silmarils, but they're the lesser forms of the Silmarils, so she's just, now she's at her height, the height of her power, and Morgoth has, has, has um, put forth power, and so... Um, he, he's no match for her. And so he screams and he, and he actually breaks the land with his scream. And, uh, and probably things wouldn't have gone well from there if not for the Balrogs. Who we, I don't usually think of as like bodyguards, but uh, from, their, <laughs> from their time in, from their, uh, the one Balrog's place in Lord of the Rings. But, but here we find, of course, they are his servants and they come yeah. to his aid and with their whips of fire drive Ungoliant away. And we don't know where she goes. Do, so we know do, we know where she goes first. So well, it says, uh, "Yeah, we she don't know where quailed. she ends up." Yeah, she quailed and turned to flight, belching black vapors to cover her. And fleeing from the north, she went down into Beleriand and dwelt beneath arid Gorgoroth in that dark valley that was after called Nandungorthup the Valley of Dreadful Death, because of the horror that she bred there. For other foul creatures of spider form had dwelt there since the days of the delving of Angben, and she mated with them and devoured them. See, people shouldn't say there's no sex in Tolkien. There's plenty of sex <laughs> going on here. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, sex and cannibalism all at once, I guess. Oh, yeah. She's eating them. And, uh, I don't yeah. want to have to put the explicit rating on the podcast, so <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> and uh, so... She, uh, it says of the fate of Ungoliant, no tale tells yet some have said that she ended long ago when in her uttermost famine she devoured herself at last. Mm. 
she's the first black hole. <laughs> in a way, right? She devoured herself. Black hole collapses in on itself. So That's yeah, right. no, but yeah, yeah. But and she's also, of course, the progenitor of uh of Sheila. Sheila. Wow. It wasn't coming to me. Uh, yeah, of Sheila, um, who is a clearly a far, far less impressive creature than she would have been. Right. Uh, at her height. Right. But um yeah. It's yeah, interesting so it's, to me how uh, it's interesting to me how all of the people that make very evil, bad, selfish decisions in this chapter, they all kind of get their just desserts. So hmm. you're, you're talking about uh, Ungoliant devouring herself. Um, you have Melkor who hangs onto the Cimmerils and ends up like burning and and just charring his hands and and forever after that he he has this pain and this anger that he, he always has to bear. Uh, you have Fanor, who uh, leads all the Noldor out of Valinor. And interestingly enough, the Valar don't stop them, despite what the lie was, was that they want to rule over you. They want to be, they want they want to take control of you and not let you be free. And then they just let them walk out. <laughs> like, oh, oh, there's the door. See you later. Yeah, right. But, uh, but he ends up leading his people. Uh, they, they end up killing a bunch of other elves. Uh, in the kinslang and then he he basically like abandons them like crossing over into middle earth like he, he leaves a lot of them just to die or or to fend for themselves and it, it just seems like the 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 results of all these things they they there's always a consequence there's always a they, ne they never get what they want it seems like yeah right and all within one one chapter too and some of them you know they're they're yeah. all they're getting their desserts quick pretty quickly although a lot of their desserts are just foretold in that quote from Mandos that we read about what's going to happen to them because of their mm -hmm. choices, their, their bad choices. Yeah. The quote about the, I like, I like that too, Dan, where, where Morgoth gets burned. He says his hands were burned black by the touch of those hallowed jewels. Remember they had been hallowed by Varda mm -hmm. and, uh, black they remained ever after, nor was he ever free from the pain of burning and the anger of the pain. That crown he never took from his head, though its weight became a deadly weariness. And the crown it was when it referred to, you know, after escaping from Ungoliant, he actually flees to Middle-earth and builds um, the threefold peaks of Thangoradrim and, and um, you know, a mightier fortress even than he had before. And basically, this is, he's, his, this is his home now. From here till, till his end in Middle-earth, um, he's, um, he's, he stakes him, himself out as, and I quote, he called himself king of the world. So, you know, you know, in Tolkien, everything, there's echoes down is supposed to be everything that comes before is like echoing. So clearly he's echoing um, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Titanic. <laughs> Sorry. It's terrible. Oh, I know it's terrible. Horrible. King of the world. How dare um, you? So, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a forecast of. of uh, yeah. Of What's to come? Of, but yeah, of, that, that's of crossing so... seas and ice, right? Yeah. That's so That's right. interesting how he gets the Cimmerils. He gets what he wants and he puts them in his crown and wears them. And, and they're like a weariness to him. Like it just, it's, he gets what he wants. And then it's just like, ugh. he gets I'm what he wants him. and it's not what weariness. he wants. Ugh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just it's like, like, it's just like the Noldor. It's a little kid who just can't admit that they're wrong and will just keep dealing with the pain and the anger and the hatred and the frustration. That's right. That's right. And say, no, 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 no. This and doesn't hurt just, at all. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Yeah. So then, so he goes over, right. He ends up in middle earth away from uh, Amon and uh, Valnor. And, uh, and this is the point at which we get into Feanor and the kinslaying where, you know, they've taken the oath. He's convinced the Noldor to follow him, though some begrudgingly, uh, Fingolfin and Finarfin follow, but only because it's, it's, uh, it's it's their kin, right? That's pretty much the only reason. And I think Tolkien wrote only a tithe of the Noldor stayed, so ten percent of the Noldor stayed uh, in Valinor. So the messenger comes before they have the kinsling at Alqualande. The messenger from Manwe comes uh, and says, "Against the folly, Fanor shall be set my counsel. Only go not forth, for the hour is evil, and your road leads to sorrow." Right? So so they're telling him not to go. But this is where you're like, well, Fanor turns to him and says. Say this to Manwe Salimo, High King of Arda. Feanor cannot overthrow Morgoth. At least he delays not to assail him and sits not in idle grief. And it may be that arrow has set in me a fire greater than thou knowest. Such hurt, at the least, will I do to the foe of the valor that even the mighty in the Ring of Doom shall wonder to hear it. Yea, in the end they shall follow me. Farewell. And I'm just like, yeah, he's doing something. The Valar are sitting around, biding their time, not really caring what Morgoth is doing. Not, you know, it's... It's the, it's like a, a, a bad military leader who's like, oh, you know, I just need more reinforcements before I go out and fight the battle. Like, no, no, Feanor, you go out and you do something and you take them when they're, before they have time to, uh, you know, raise up their fortifications and dig the, the, the moats around their, their castles. He's going to go and do something. And to me, that, that was kind of, that's a little rah-rah moment where I'm, I'm thinking like, yeah, Feanor's right. He's doing something and they're not. I think I think we are meant to have sympathy for Feanor. I mean, he speaks powerfully and with truth. He speaks so powerfully that that even quote even the herald of the Valar bowed before him as one full answered and departed. Mm, I love that. So so yeah. you know the herald of who was probably a Maiar of some sort bows before him and you know you know basically he gives a great answer and he's absolutely right. This is exactly what the Valar do and it, and I to re reread that part that you you just read, Jonathan. It says. Mm-hmm. He says, if Fionor cannot overthrow Morgoth, at least he delays not to assail him and sits not idle in grief. So, yeah. which is exactly what the Valar are going to do. They're so sad for the loss of the two trees, they just sit idle in grief while Morgoth escapes with Ungoliant. And so, you know, we can, I think we can sympathize and empathize with, with what the Noldor are feeling right now. That's a, it's a really interesting juxtaposition that Tolkien is doing because he's making it clear that what they're doing is wrong is going to lead to grief, but... We we see that we see some virtue in what they're in. At least mm-hmm. they're they're trying to to react against the evil. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and it's from there that that he moves on. He leaves, and then they get to the Teleri. So um, the Teleri. So I mean, just to recap, we've mentioned it a couple times, like the the kinslaying. But just to recap, essentially, the Noldor go and they can't cross the ocean to chase after Morgoth, and uh, the only other path is to follow into the extreme north with the Helcorak, say the grinding ice. And they know that's going to lead to a lot of death on their part of their own people. So they try to convince the Teleri to give them their swan ships. The Teleri resist, um, even though, well, Feanor tries to first convince them through friendship, and then he starts mocking them. And uh, like he, he loses his powers of demagoguery fairly quickly. I I love that he calls them faint hearted loiterers. (laughs) Yeah. It cuts. That's it's very, right. Uh, it's very Trumpian. He like he, he hits him with a nickname. Oh, you're you're sleepy, sleepy Teleri. You know. <laughs> I don't know. 
Don't want to don't want to do anything. Very lazy. Tiny Tulare. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Leonora's Trump. Now Leonora's Trump. Now it's not no. gonna leave my mind. Thanks, Dan. No. <laughs> Um, and he says, he makes a claim, he says, in huts on the beaches would you be dwelling still had not the Noldor carved out your haven and toiled upon their walls. And then comes this, my favorite quote ever from Olway, who's the head of the King of the Telerian, one of the original elves um, and the elven ambassadors that first made the journey to uh, visit Valinor and then came back and convinced his people to come. Um, and he said, we renounce no friendship, but it may be on the part of a friend to rebuke a friend's folly. And when the Noldor welcomed us and gave us aid, otherwise than, than you spoke. In the land of Amun, we were to dwell forever as brothers whose houses stand side by side. So he's essentially calling them out and saying, we're brothers. We're not, there's no lesser or greater here. But as for our white ships, those you gave us not. So he's kind of slapping down um, Feanor's. Basically, we claim that basically we gave you everything. And you'd be nothing if, if it wasn't for us. He said, we always says, we learned not that craft from the Noldor, but from the lords of the sea and the white timbers we wrought with our own hands and the white sails were woven by our wives and our daughters. Therefore, we will give neither give them nor sell them for any league or friendship. For I say to you, Feanor, son of Finway, these are to us as are the gems of the Noldor, the works of our heart, those, those, I'm sorry, whose like we shall not make again. So again, so we have Elway echoing what Yovana said. And then what Fianor said, which is basically, we can only do this great work once. For Yavanna, mm. it was the true trees. For Fianor, it was the Silmarils. And for the yeah. Teleri, it's their swan ships. Yeah, and it harkens back to the things that, that, you know, you destroy the thing that they put their heart and soul into. And that uh, that is a death in and of itself. We're harkening back to Yavanna so, versus Fianor. Un unshockingly, Fianor does not accept this answer. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> does what he's good at, which is draw a sword on kin, and right. uh, and and uh, the, a battle ensues. And at first, there's um, it's sort of there's a parity um, because there's more of the Teleri than the vanguard which Fionor's with. Um, but then the rest of the Noldor arrive, and the Noldor um, they remember they have arms and armor, and they're prepared for war. And so they overthrow and slay the Teleri and take their yeah, ships. Yeah, and when you when you think since Feanor, the the Noldor were the first to actually construct arms and armor, and I believe Tolkien writes that pretty much the Teleri only had bows. It's essentially people with swords against people with you know light sticks, and because uh, I, I don't I don't believe that if you follow the 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 progress of the the narrative, they wouldn't have constructed any arms at all there would be no swords there'd be no homes there'd be no no hauberks there'd be no shields it'd be just them and their bows and arrows because they would hunt maybe right probably uh, some spears or harpoons or yeah, whatever you spear hunt. fishing was probably a thing right. you know right out there so they, could, the they could definitely use those in need um yeah. but but nothing compared to the arms and armor of the noldor yeah yeah, completely. A, I'm sure it was an absolute massacre. And this is the point at which we see Galadriel come up uh, on a on a high hill while they're battling and say, to arms, to me, Noldor, come fight with... Never mind. Nope. No, she doesn't do that. Or not. I thought, thought it says she was a warrior. This is where she has that big giant like five-hand sword, you know, and she... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she swings it and she, she cleaves the crowns of all the Teleri around her. That's right. And then she yeah. and then she manspreads. <laughs> Jeez, as one does. Oh yeah, just look up the uh, was it Empire Weekly covers of uh, Galadriel if you'd like to see that. Interesting. Well, it, is well, a, 
it isn't here, right? Um, it's in one of the other works of Tolkien where it talks I think, about, I think it's Unfinished Tales where yeah. he says she defended uh, her kin against the Teleri. Right. Like she, yeah. That essentially she came Something upon like the that. battle with some of her kin. They didn't know who it was who yeah. started the fight. And so she fought to defend herself against the... Yeah. you got to remember the Teleri outnumber the Noldor tremendously. They're, they're um, very poorly armed and armored, of course, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. But, but they do have the advantage of numbers because we're in their home on their home right. turf um, right so so anyway so, um so so they go in they take the boats uh i'm i'm guessing uh ulmo uh gets angry mm-hmm. or the lords of the sea do yeah uh, well, and they many of the boats are cast upon the rocks and they end up uh further north and uh i think at this, at this point is it uh Finarfin turns back but in that hour Finarfin forsook the march and turned back so fingolfin's brother uh, right. I, yeah. I, so I'm that's trying, so, man, I'm so, trying to remember all the names. No, that's correct. But you have to remember. So, so if you picture it, the boats are traveling north, and there's a lot of people not on the boats, and, and so that's what they encounter up. Mandos yeah. on the hill that Dan read the right. quote from at the beginning in Dad's Dan's big thought, and then so Mandos pronounces his doom very, very uh, powerfully, right. and at that moment, Finarfin of the three leaders turns back with his people. So some of the Noldor remain, not just the one, the tithe, as you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. Jonathan, but this is a whole group of them that, that go back and they, um, and they're forgiven. There's explicitly said that they're forgiven by the Nold, by the, uh, Valar. Yeah. And this is where, once they reach the Northern part of, uh, of, uh, the encircling seas, essentially the, uh, the final man, the final horrible, act by Feanor, I, I guess the beginning of the final horrible act where he decides, you know, everybody else, you're not with me anymore. It doesn't really matter. I'm here just to cross the seas. We can't do, we can't go the, uh, we can't cross the hell cracks, right? The, the grinding ice essentially would like think of Antarctica, but with, with icebergs blocking your path every step of the way. That's at least that's the way I think about it. Um, and so he decides since, since he and those uh, are loyal to him, are in control of the remaining ships, they set sail and leave. They just leave all the rest of the Noldor there, uh, right across there, including Fingolfin and Turgon and all the, uh, you know, the, the friends of, of, uh, Feanor's children. And, uh, yeah, a bitter rough, like yep. this would have been a better show than the rings of power, but they didn't get, the well, I mean, what a show like this chapter alone. So you have this incredible arc of, if you watch Fionor in this chapter from start to finish, and you just told us the finish there, Jonathan, you have it starts with Fionor being asked to give up the Silmarils and his the great work. And, uh, and if he does so, he mentions, "If I do so, I'll die." So he yeah. he's being he, he, we feel for him like this is a this is a terrible thing to ask to ask him to do. And then he gets the news that his father's been murdered, and he and he and he runs off, and we like who wouldn't be sympathetic to him at this point. And then, and then he riles his people up and gets them to, to, to make that the, 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 the vow and gathers his armies. And although this is not something that's good in and of itself, at least it's, it's something where now he's in a, he's, he's sort of the leader of his entire people. And he's, he even, he even answers adequately the, the herald, of Manway who comes and to, 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 you know, he, he sort of gives his own speech in, re, in retort. And we were told that, you know, it's, a, it's impressive enough to make the Herald leave. 
and so that's him at his sort of the heights of his, as king. And then and then he gets to the, the his next point is we, we, he gets to his kin, the Teleri can't convince them, so he slays them. So he's he's cra- he's crashing and burning. And yeah. then finally, he betrays his own people, not just not just elves, other types of elves, but in the final chapter, he betrays those who were who were loyal to him, exactly. and followed him, not just so, the Noldor who stayed. So he's not even a, he's not even a, a murderer of his of a of, of kin, but now he's a betrayer of his own yeah. people who are loyal to him. It reminds I don't know if you guys have you watched Yellowstone, the show yeah. Yellowstone at all? Yeah, it reminds me he's like the John Dutton. John Dutton is that his first name? Yeah, John Dutton. The Kevin Costner character, right? He's trying to protect his land, and he's going to do anything it takes. And if you did this as a as an actual uh, performance, as an actual like long series streaming TV show, you can make Feanor this character that you love, you love to hate, and you hate to love all at the same time, yeah. like you do with with the Duttons in that like Rip Wheeler and all those those crazy characters in that show. It feels a little bit like that, where you know you you're like, well, they're just trying to protect their land. He's just trying to get what was stolen from him and seek revenge against the the. Uh, the villain who who murdered his father, but then he does all these evil deeds along the way. And you're like, I can't, I'm just not with you anymore. And then he does something good, and you're like, okay, okay, okay. And then you, you, the the bouncing that you'd get with a character character like Phaetonor for the for your emotions um, would be that 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 the chasm between the good and the bad with him could be performed incredibly well. I feel like anyway, um, yeah, it's it's true. It's a real amazing. I mean, it's just terrific writing by Tolkien yeah. showing us in one chapter what he can do with a, an unbelievable yeah. character like, like Fionor. Speaking of terrific writing, um, the after, so he leaves, he leaves um, those loyal to him uh, on the shores of Amman, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always like tripping over the geography. Geography was never my specialty in, in school, so I'm, I'm still learning it in here in Middle Earth. However, so he leaves him there and then Maedhras, the eldest of his sons and a friend of Fingon, uh, Aaron Morgoth's lies came between and spoke to Fanor and said, now what ships and rowers will you spare to return? Because they haven't burned the ships. They haven't done anything yet. And whom shall they bear first? Fingon the Valiant? And then Fanor laughed and as one fan, and he cried. And this, I love this line. And I love this line. I don't know if you've heard it in the Silmarillion audiobook, but the way he says it with sort of the, the malice and the anger, the, the bitterness, and even the um, the villainous humor that he has. So I'm going to, I'm going to play that here because I just love the way that he says it. None and none. What I have left behind, I count now no loss, needless baggage on the road it has proved. Let those that cursed my name curse me still and whine their way back to the cages of the Valar. Let the ships burn. Yeah, I just like the the, the way that uh, the the reader there he reads that aloud. It's 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 amazing. Anyway, so that's probably my favorite line of this this whole chapter, where he just says, "What I have left behind, I count no loss." Like he is just so bitter, he's angry. He just needs the Silmarils. He's he's out for revenge. Um, mm-hmm. Needless baggage on the road. It has proved they're slowing me down. They're they're dragging me. They're 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 taking me away from my ultimate goal. Let those that curse my name. And now it's not just that th- th- that they, they're not fast enough, they're baggage. Now that they're the ones who cursed his name, apparently. Let them curse me still and wind their way back to the cages of the Valar. Let the ships burn. Yeah, uh, and this is, I mean, you you described it well, Jonathan. It's a full arc into villainy. Like, this is complete villainy now. There's no more sympathy that you can have for mm-hmm. Fanor when he turns against his own and even people that were supporting him in this way and just full on, you know, 
betrays them with hatred and bitterness. Yeah. Um, this is one of the, my, <clears throat> let's see, I guess, spoiler alert, not really spoiler because it's just my <laughs> personal opinion, but, um, my favorite, uh, of the Noldor has always been Fingolfin. And, and so, um, we see here, um, a, a portion of his character, which is kind of interesting in his reaction, um, to what Feanor has done in burning the ships at far off. Of course, he's there across the ocean, the sea, um, which is not too far across the sea, obviously farther than any hope of traveling there, except over the ice. But it says, then Fingolfin, seeing that Feanor had left him to perish in Aramon, there's the answer to your question, Jonathan, yeah, of what land they were in, or return in shame to Valinor, was filled with bitterness. But he desired now as never before to come by some way to Middle-earth and meet Feanor again. So, so he's just filled with this, like, desire, like, he matches almost Fionor's fire with, with, you know, we're going to make it. We're going we're gonna to do what no, nobody's ever done before or since, and we're going to travel over the grinding ice and, and come to Middle-earth. And it's told I'm gonna, that uh, they, did, they did that and lost many elves. And then it says, as the final line of this chapter, small love for Fionor or his sons had those that marched at last behind him and blew their trumpets in Middle-earth at the first rising of the moon, which is a cool poetic yeah. line because, of course, we don't know about the moon yet. He just, right, right. He's just foreshadowing for lightning, foreshadowing the uh, the moon, <laughs> the rise of the moon. Tolkien Tolkien is the master of the final sentence. It's just, <laughs> yeah, he, it's he pretty ends good. He chapters so well. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good. I love it. So that that was our chapter. That was good. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it sets up so much. And though it's not my my favorite chapters of the Silmarillion, um, there is a, so much in that one. I feel like it, even the the forty five minutes or so we spent on this is it feels feels so brief and feels so little. Yeah, this um, is a this, this is a full one, and it has poetic power. And or it's the origin, like the origin of all that all the woe. And, and sorrow that's going to come for many many pages after this is all this this is this chapter is the seed this is where it all comes from yeah yeah so then next week we're going to get into uh not the noldor which is of the sindar uh and what happened to those elves that didn't actually cross the sea that weren't pulled in a in a, in a neat floating island to uh to the shores of valinor um so yeah of the sindar we'll do that next week but before we get into that um, we do have our our uh, weekly. If you like Tolkien, and this week, um, I know you know Tolkien really only wrote two stories. Two, I guess, what's the way I'm trying to put it? He only wrote two published books. He wrote The Lord of the Rings and he wrote The Hobbit. Everything else is relatively short compared to that, right? He had he. Uh, you could say maybe. I mean, there's Farmer Giles of him. There's. Uh, um, uh, the Leaf Adventures of Tom Bombadil, Leaf by Nagel, but they're not they're they're not full on uh, story arcs in the way that The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. However, post posthumously, right, we have the uh, I think twelve volumes of the Middle Earth. You have Unfinished Tales, but all those you have the Silmarillion, and all those are relatively uh, brief stories of characters told in expository format. There's there's not a lot of interactions necessarily between the characters that you get in something like the Lord of the Rings where you build the relationships between the court characters, except for one that I think comes closest to that. Uh, and that's the children of Hurin. Uh, and this book 
was published uh, 2014, maybe. Let me find it real fast here. Uh, oh, I, 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 apparently it's not right there. Anyway, so, but what it does is it tells the story of the children of Hurin, which uh, Hurin is, the, is uh, uh, one of the bravest men who fought uh, with the elves uh, at the great battles. I don't know, I don't remember which one anymore. Uh, 2000, uh, let's see, 2000, oh, well, this was, was 2007. Was it really 2007? Wow, a lot, a lot earlier than I thought. In any case, uh, I recommend this if you're looking for a story. It is not um, a happy story like The Hobbit. <laughs> it's not um, uh, the good guys win in the end story like The Lord of the Rings. Uh, you could say somewhat the good guys win. In any case, I'd recommend it. It's it's kind of a, it's a, it's a tougher read, but it's far more interesting than if you go read Baron and Luthien, his, the, the published book that they had that came out some years back too. Uh, it is more of a tale to be enjoyed in, if you're an adult really, um, than I think a lot of his other posthumous works. So anyway, I recommend Children of Purina. Have you, you've read it, right, Michael? I have. I don't know yep, yep. Dan, it's more of a, it's, it is more in the tragic, the, 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 well, Yes. realm of the tragic but um, yeah but but the, the tragedies of shakespeare are the best of shakespeare so i don't know right yeah yeah and it's i mean if you've read the silmarillion you're like well that was kind of dry at times you're like I, and i would recommend going to this because it's a step back from the some of the dryness and some mm. of the expositoriness right. of the silmarillion so. definitely is yeah i believe yeah. uh you gifted me a copy before you I moved did. off to a free state um <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've yet to, I have yet to read it. I was going to do the yeah. Silmarillion first and then get, hop into that. You know what? You could read when we get through it after um, reading it in the Silmarillion. This is like the extended edition. Oh, okay. Uh, cool. Right. There will yeah. be a shorter version of it in the Silmarillion. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, uh, next week of the Sindar, thanks for joining us. Um, please give us a review uh, on your podcast app of choice. Uh, that's the way to help people find us. We would love to share our love of Tolkien with more people and uh, to share the original Tolkien because so many people are going to experience and have experienced it in ways by um, uh, other means, whether Peter Jackson's films, boy, whether Ralph Bakshi's uh, 1970s Ooh. versions. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now upcoming, well, and The Hobbit. We won't, we won't name that one. Uh, and, and upcoming Amazon's Rings of Power. But going back to the original is so much more fulfilling, so much more rewarding than watching somebody else's interpretation. You get to experience it in your own head. You get to see these characters interact in ways that uh, can't be put to a screen. And I think that's worth a lot. So give us a like, uh, give us a great review. We'd appreciate that. Five stars is nice. And then if you're watching on YouTube, um, like, subscribe, share, tell your friends about it. We appreciate you. Thanks for watching and we'll catch you next week. Take care. Michael, Dan, and Jonathan want to thank you, the listener, for joining us. Visit us at theonering.com, your source for everything Tolkien, where you can comment on this episode and join the conversation. This is Austin Robertson bidding you farewell. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. <laughs>